hope you like music because there's lots of it at Christmas time that we have, and it is good for us to celebrate the incarnation of Christ with music. It's good that we do it. We just hope that you don't do it like this kid does it. We hope that you sing with uh, all of your heart, which is really a biblical imperative. You ought to sing with all of your heart. When Paul was talking about church services there in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, he talks about the fact and setting the model for the church that he sings uh, not only with his spirit, which means that you're fully engaged, you're fully involved, there's some enthusiasm in it, that you're, you're there, you're fully present in your singing, but also he says, I want you to sing with your mind, right? I also sing with my mind. The mind has to be engaged or it really isn't worship, right? It's one thing to have an emotional experience, but you better uh, be engaged in your soul to the place of having your mind cognitively and fully engaged. And that's important to do, particularly as we sing so many old Christmas carols that have words in them, like the title of this one, uh, that have words you probably didn't use this week, like hark and herald. Uh, Those are words that uh, obviously they mean something and they might mean something to you, but if it just is a lyric in a tune that you happen to recognize at Christmas, well, then we have some work to do to make sure that we sit up straight, enthusiastically sing, and that our minds are fully engaged. This title really speaks of communication, and today communication is so easy. If you want to communicate with someone, you can pick up that little computer in your pocket. You can send them a message. You can record a message. You can send them, you know, all kinds of little things in, you know, to them that communicates all kinds of things. And you have group threads. You've got social media, and maybe you're some big influencer, and you can click something and send it off, and you can talk to tens of thousands of people. And if you know the right people in the right industries, maybe you could talk to hundreds of thousands of people in no time just by typing something into your phone. But if you wanted to get an important message out to people in the olden days, you needed the guy that was called the Herald. The Herald was a very important spokesperson who was supposed to take an accurate message from someone very important. And it didn't matter what culture you were in. Every culture had someone specially authorized to bring information to the people, particularly from kings or people in authority to have administrators or leaders or kings send out information through very important communicators called the heralds. As a matter of fact, it's one of the New Testament words, caruso, that is used to describe the act of preaching. Someone is to herald the message that comes from God to the people in their generation. And uh, certainly angels, angelic beings, were called to bring messages to people. That's what their word, uh, the title, angel, means, a messenger. But to call them a herald is to remember they're coming from God's throne room. So whatever culture you had, you had people that would come into the city square or the village square and would make some noise like this guy with a drum or back in the Middle Ages, maybe he'd have a horn dressed with regal robes or outfits that would say, I'm from somewhere important and you need to listen, which by the way is the old word hark. That's not the noise they made if they played the trumpet poorly. That is the word uh, that is to try and tell you to listen up. That's what it means. Hark means listen. It's an imperative. It's telling people you ought to listen to this. So when you think of the angelic heralds, the official spokespersons of the creator, coming to a bunch of shepherds outside of Bethlehem, you need to remind yourself that what they're telling people to do, at least in the lyrics of this song, is to listen up. And clearly they were there to do that in mass to get people to listen. And their message, as summarized by the lyrics of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is that they're telling people that they ought to give glory to the newborn king. And certainly that was part of what they were there to do, to tell people who this child was and to tell them to give him glory. 
Now, glory is one of those words that uh, we need a synonym for, and I like to suggest the word greatness, because that's what it means. It's to, to talk about glory, if something is glorious, it has weight or meaning or greatness to it. And we need to think about it that way, particularly when we use the word glory as an imperative verb. We're telling people to bring glory to someone, right? We can use the verb ascribe. We're telling people to ascribe greatness to, in this case, to a little baby, a newborn king. Right? Now, that's an odd thing to think about a baby as a king, right? Uh, I mean, picturing some kind of crown on a little baby's head, it's like, okay, I guess, that's kind of weird. They can't do anything. They can't speak. They can't, you know, they, they can't do anything. They're just babies, little eight-pound ball of humanity. Uh, it's hard to think of them as, uh, as a king, a little baby. But that, of course, is what the prophecy said would happen. And the angels were there as representatives, as heralds of heaven, to tell the people, this is the king. And that shouldn't come as a surprise if you know the Old Testament, and perhaps those Jewish shepherds in Bethlehem did. They knew enough, perhaps, to know this very famous passage in Isaiah chapter 9, that there would be one day born, hundreds of years after Isaiah prophesied it, that there would be a child that was born, a little son that was given. And of course, the description of the regal nature of this child was that the government will rest upon his two shoulders, on his shoulders. Now, if you asked a Jewish shepherd in the first century, if you think about the government resting in one person, which that's how it was in the monarchies of Israel, right? If you thought about who had the most authority vested on his shoulders in the history of Israel, I think every single one of them would say accurately Solomon. You might think about David as the greatest king of the Old Testament, but he's only great from our perspective because he is a man after God's own heart, which obviously is supremely important. But in terms of power and regal authority and wealth, and the extent of his domain. You'd have to say Solomon was the one benefiting from his father David that inherited a great kingdom. And he was so great that word and fame spread throughout. And as this famous painting depicts, even people like the Queen of Sheba were so impressed by what she heard, she had to go see if the regal greatness of this one king was true. And so this painting depicts her ascending the steps of Solomon's throne, even as it's described in Scripture, very carefully and deferentially bowing before King Solomon. And to think about that, I mean, that's one thing. He has this great palace that Solomon built there and the temple right next door that he built. But to think about a baby being in the position of having all that kind of deference and all that kind of authority, that's, that's a completely... The broad shoulders of Solomon, perhaps, uh, but not a baby. And yet that's exactly what the prophecy said. As a matter of fact, in verse 7 of Isaiah 9, it said the extent of that government would be so far, it would be so much far beyond the kingdom of David that it would extend so far it would be infinite, right? The extent of his government, there would be no end. It would be universal. It would be terrestrial. It would be universal around the world uh, that this global king would reign. But the, the descriptors get much bigger than that, as you know, right? Uh, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he's going to have these names. Wonderful counselor. We talk about this a lot every Christmas. But here he has this perfect kind of decree, this perfect kind of law. Everything that he says from his regal throne is just absolutely perfect. The word here translated, it's, it's wonderful. All the directives from, from the, the seat of power, perfect. And, and speaking of power, we might as well talk about this great Hebrew phrase that he has all power. It's like the, the mighty God of the universe. All that mighty power all over the planet being exercised there in, in one person, on the shoulders of that one person person that would grow up to be the king of the world, mighty God. 
and he would be the father of not only the nation of Israel, but father of the whole earth. How much so? Forever, eternal father. And he would secure at the borders with his strength and his might and his wisdom that he would be the prince of peace. He'd have no rivals. He would have no one vying for his throne because no one would dare usurp the authority of the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father that rules on the planet. So if you think about the regal authority of Solomon on a throne in Jerusalem, you got to think much higher when you start getting appellations like that to describe this baby. This baby is more like the throne we learn about many years later in the book of Revelation as John has a depiction of the throne that's not gilded in gold, it's white. It's a great white throne. And on that white throne, there was one who was seated on it. And I will tell you clearly in Scripture, this is the second person of the Godhead. This is the one to whom all judgment is delivered, as the book of John continues to say over and over again. Jesus is the judge, and he sits on the throne. Now, it's not just a bowing Queen Sheba that comes before him. It says, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. That's a really amazing way to talk about someone with so much power, so much authority that no one can even approach him. I mean, talk about bowing in, in, in obeisance or in deference to him. That's, that's a phenomenal statement. And yet every single person will be called before him at the end of time in this throne, on this throne. They will stand, whether they're small or great in this world, and they will have to answer to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all of that, of course, in this text is about a baby which is bizarre and crazy to think about that a baby that can't even control his bowels is there in the arms of a, of a mom, right? And, and can't, even, can't even speak, right? There's just bumbling and mumbling and crying. Right? Is the one to whom all this authority rests? I mean, talk about greatness. Well, that's greatness. And the angels say, that baby right there, that's the one. That's the King of Kings. It's the Lord of Lords. And all greatness should be ascribed to him. That's what this song is all about. And you ought to listen to that because God himself has sent his regal messengers called the heralds to come and bring that message in Luke chapter 2. So when you sing this song, remember the context and remember what it is all about because it is an important Christmas carol that reminds us of the authority of Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we sing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Please be seated. Born that man no more may die. That's a great line describing the purpose of Christ, and that would be good news, but it's only good news because men are dying, and that's the bad news, right? And that all started back in Genesis chapter 3. The point of Christ's coming was to deal with the problem of Genesis 3, which was that human beings, when given instructions by their creator, decided they weren't going to do it. Very simple. Do what your creator tells you to do. And they said no. They became rebels in the garden as the tempter tempted them. And because of that, you remember, they were cast out of paradise, cast out of the garden. And God says, you cannot be here anymore. You cannot have the unfiltered, unmitigated blessings of of fellowship in the presence of me because you are a sinner, right? Sin separates. And they were sent out. And there was a guard posted, you might remember, so they couldn't enter back into the place that was good. Instead, they were in the outer place on this planet that was now cursed, where there would be disease, there would be thorns, there would be relational problems. There would be all the things that we have on this life and would end up in death. And that was the problem. And if you can't get back into where you want to be, where there's none of that, well, then you are incarcerated, right? You are no longer allowed to be where you want to be. You're kept in a place that's a whole lot less than where you want to be. You're stuck in a place that is imperfect, to put it mildly. And yet the incarnation, right, was all about fixing this problem. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 put it this way, that since the children, the children ultimately of Adam and Eve, all of us given to the problem that was there started in the garden, the rebellion of our great parents, We share in flesh and blood, flesh and blood that is now cursed and subject to death. All of that, since we have that, he now came, the second person of the Godhead, to likewise partake of the same. He now was going to take on flesh and blood. He was going to have the characteristics of humanity and become human so that through death, he would die. Now, he would That's the only reason he's now incarnate, to actually live in our place and die in our place. The manger has to remind us of the purpose, which is the cross, to absorb the penalty of death so that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And you think, well, who has the power of death? God was the one who subjected them to the penalty of death. Well, in the case of Genesis 3, we know that Satan, the devil, was the one tempting man and woman to sin so that they could be shut out of the presence of God just like he was. Preceding the fall of humanity is the fall of a bunch of angels started by this head angel that we call the devil who said, I'm going to rebel against the creator and therefore I'm shut out of the presence of God, at least in the way that I was before having the blessings of God. I need these creatures, this new project of God to go awry by having them follow me in the rebellion. And in doing so, in tempting them, he had, in essence, the power of their exclusion from the presence of God. And I'm sure he felt very good about that, that he was able to mess up God's good plan with humanity. But Christ puts on humanity, flesh and blood, that he might reverse the problem, that he might destroy Satan and his plan, the one who has the power of death, and deliver us, get us out of that incarceration, stuck behind the penalty, the bars and incarceration of being in fear of what happens when we are subject to death. All the things surrounding death, the death that we experience, not just the biological death, but all the things that go with living in a cursed world. We're subject to lifelong slavery because ultimately we fear the judgment that follows that death, just as Satan fears that judgment. We were now subject to the fear of slavery, of what happens when we die once and then face the judgment. All of that being reversed by Christ. That's what this song is about. 
Come thou long expected Jesus. From Genesis 3 until Matthew 1, we were waiting for the coming of the deliverer. And as we sing this song, you've got to remember one man. His name was Simeon. He lived in Jerusalem, and he was a devout and righteous man, and he was waiting, the Bible says, for the consolation of Israel. As I said two weeks ago, after the kids' musical, consolation, it, 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 it assumes the fact that there's a problem. Right? I need to be cons- consoled if I'm anxious, if I'm worried, if I'm down, if I'm depressed. The consolation of Israel is that God would fix the problem and be able to reverse the fear and the slavery of death and the consequences of sin because of this one person. Right? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the Bible says. And so he is there in the temple courtyard as the parents come to take Jesus to do what the law of Moses had required here. He's a week old as he comes onto the temple mount. And so Simeon takes up this baby. God had said, you will live long enough to see the Messiah. And he picks up the baby in his arms and he praises God. He blesses God and he says this, now, Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your promise, according to your word, you promised me I wouldn't die until I saw the Messiah. He says, now, he says, I have seen, I love this, I've seen your salvation. My eyes have taken a look at the means by which you are going to deliver people from the fear of the consequences of their sin. And it's been done in public, been prepared here, here in the populated, shoulder-to-shoulder environs of the busy, bustling center of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and people have anticipated in the Bible, and now they're seeing this child, all the events that took place outside of Jerusalem in Bethlehem, all the angels, all the shepherds talking, and now everyone knows he's been born here, and this child is going to be told about. All the information about the Old Testament is going to be given as a light of revelation, even beyond Jews, all the way to the Gentiles. I would say today on the other side of the planet, a bunch of Gentiles in the 21st century, on the other side of the earth, we are experiencing the truth of a Jewish Messiah who's come to be a blessing and a fulfillment of the promise of Abraham in Genesis 12, that this would be someone who would reverse the problem of sin and death, even to people that are not descendants physically and biologically of Abraham. But it would bring glory to Israel and Abraham because this Israel, the means by which God brought his Savior, right? Many of them would be saved. A remnant would be saved. And yet they would be ones like many of us as Christians do. We favor and we give honor to Israel because of the means and avenue through which Christ brought his Savior. That's what this song is about. Listen to the words. Come thou long expected Jesus. Picture yourself as the aging Simeon on the temple mount. Right? What did he come to do? He was born to set your people free. These are great lines. It's about us being shut out of the presence and blessings of God in this lifetime. But Christ came to take those fears and the sin, and have all of that be no longer accredited to our account, no longer guilty of our sins. And we can find rest, lack of anxiety, lack of fear. We don't fear death. We don't fear judgment. We don't fear being excluded from God's presence as we trust in him. This is Israel's glory, Israel's strength, and Israel's consolation. It's the answer for the problem of sin. And it's not just for Jews. It's the hope of all the earth. You are. That's a great, great set of words, and we ought to sing that with an understanding of how many years Israel thought and prayed and hoped that this Savior would come to give deliverance from the problem that we all face, Jew and Gentile alike, that we're going to be shut out of the presence of God were it not for the salvific work of Christ living and dying in our place. Come thou, long-expected Jesus.
Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel, strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, thou art desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. talked about and sung a song that really focuses on who the baby Jesus is. Uh, we've talked about and sung a song about what Jesus has done. And um, 
it'd be good for us to talk about and sing a song that tells us how we ought to respond to the birth of Christ. That's important, and there's a good song for that. It asks a question, and then it answers it, and then it tells us what we ought to do. What child is this? A good Christmas carol that asks the question and then goes on in the song to answer it and talk about all the people that had responded, starting with angelic beings, right? They greeted the birth of Christ with anthems. It speaks of the shepherds being told and then coming to encircle the place where Jesus was born, guarded by shepherds. And then it turns the attention to those who hear this song, and it says you ought to bring him laud. And again, the older language here needs to be updated that you understand what you're singing. Laud means to praise or to give acclaim or uh, celebrity to. You tell that this is an important person. You praise him. You worship him. And then it says in the next line here, hail the word made flesh. That's the word that is describing and depicting the second person of the triune God in John chapter 1, the expression here of God in the person of Christ as the Father sends the Son, and as verse 14 says of John, when he becomes flesh and dwells among us. You ought to hail him. Now, that's a word, too, we don't use very often, but that literally in the Greek New Testament means to salute, to give a sense of, of, of of deference to, to show the importance of that person. Hail the word made flesh. And then a great line in this song, it says, loving hearts enthrone him. That's obviously what you ought to do to respond to the king of kings who's come to die so that you can be forgiven. Right? You should enthrone him. That's a good poetic way to say he should be the most important person to you. You enthrone a lot of things in your life. You have a lot of plans, a lot of people you love, a lot of things you like to do. But the Bible says if he's the king of kings and lord of lords, he certainly should be enthroned as the king of your life. And that's the only way to get the benefits of what Christ has done is to see him for who he is, to confess that Jesus is Lord. Right? And when we do that, we, we start to act like it. And interestingly enough, in the lyrics of this particular carol, it refers back historically to the gifts of the wise man, and it says you ought, to, you ought to reflect that. You ought to do what they did. Bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Now, that's a strange thing in the middle of this carol to hear yourself singing, to bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Of course, those were the gifts that these magi, these Persian professorial types who had studied all the things that Daniel had said Right, 400 years earlier, they are now recipients of all the learning of this Hebrew prophet that lived among them for a time, and they recognized that what Daniel had talked about was the coming of one who would be the king of all the peoples. Not only that, in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about when he would actually come. Well, they discerned through the means that they had available to them, not only when he would be born, but where he would be born through the star, of course, that we read about in Matthew. And they come to Jesus's home, not the manger, but at least a year later, they come to Bethlehem to his home and they bring him those gifts. We don't know how many there were, but there were three gifts. Most people picture three of these wise men or magi, but they show up and give very expensive gifts. Now, if you're going to go to a a one-year-old birthday party, don't bring incense, gold, and myrrh. I wouldn't think it would, I mean, I don't, it's not the perfect gift for a one-year-old. And yet that's what they bring. It seems useless to a baby to have those three very expensive, right, and precious commodities. It, it doesn't make sense. And yet we know the story. Those are going to be useful to Joseph and Mary. They're going to be on the run. They have to get back to Nazareth. They have to raise this child, the most important child in all of history. And so Mary and Joseph obviously use those 
commodities to be able to do the work of being the guardian, protector, those who raised this young Messiah in the early years of Jesus' life. Right? Bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Now, the song is saying, you ought to do that. You ought to bring him some gifts. Well, the wise man brought gifts that really Jesus couldn't use, and we bring gifts, and it doesn't seem like we can, can see Jesus using any of those gifts. And that's the way it's been from the beginning. All of the gifts that we see God calling his people to bring, right? they, they don't seem useful. Think of this verse, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord. I want to honor the Lord. Well, let's sing some songs. No, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Well, what does he like? Pears? right? Avocados? What, what am I bringing him? What are his tastes? Well, Psalm 50 says, listen, he's not hungry. Even if he were hungry, he wouldn't ask you, right? He, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need any of your stuff. Now think about it. the whole Old Testament was based on bringing gifts to, in your worship. I mean, think back to when the, the tabernacle was pitched or when the temple was built. You were to bring gifts, right? You're supposed to bring the best and the first fruits of the ground and bring them into the house of your God. Now, God doesn't live there. There was a special representation of God over the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, but God's not going to eat your stuff, right? You bring the first of your flocks. You bring the first fresh uh, uh, produce of, of the ground, the first fruits, right? God's not going to eat any of that. Who was going to eat it? Well, the Levites were going to eat it. Some of it was burned up completely, but most of it was utilized to sustain the leaders who were all about being the guardians of this message in the sense that they were the scribes, they were the teachers of the law, they were propagating the message of the God of the Old Testament and all the prophecies about the coming of Christ. So they utilized it. It funded the worship. It funded the teaching. It funded the propagation of the message of Christ, right? the coming of Christ. That's how it worked. That's how, always how it worked. That's how the psalmist knew it worked. That if I'm going to be a worshiper and do what we saw there at the very beginning of our discussion of these carols, to ascribe to the Lord the greatness or the glory due the name of the triune God. Right? You see a semicolon here. Then what? Well, then we should bring an offering and come into his courts. Well, that's a strange thing. Again, what good is that going to do? Well, it's not that it does good for God, but it does good for the cause of the message of God. And it does good for you as a worshiper. It's one thing for me to say, sit up straight, pay attention to the lyrics that you're singing, and sing with all enthusiasm and get your mind engaged. That is worship. I get it. But in the Bible, to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name, the next step in that is to take it further. And let's talk about your flocks. Let's talk about the, 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 the cattle that you raise. Let's talk about the bank accounts that you have control over. Let's talk about your commodities, your resources, the things that you have, your talents, Right? Let's talk about real wealth and let's say now honor the Lord with that. Right? That's the part. I can tell you one thing non-Christians hate, offerings. They hate that. They don't want, I mean, you didn't laugh at that, but you know it's true, right? Uh, they do not like offerings. Matter of fact, that's why at, at Christmas Eve services, we don't take an offering. We don't take an offering. Unless it lands on a Sunday, which I thought this is perfect to talk about offerings <laughs> in the third discussion of a carol. Because it is Sunday, and on Sundays we take an offering. We take an offering as an act of worship. And the thing is, non-Christians think, well, it's just about those pastors and that church just getting rich. And you might think about it this way. Well, you know, when I bring an offering, if I bring an offering, I, I know where it's going to go. It's going to go to fund the staff. It's going to go to build lobbies. It's going to go to plant churches. It's going to go for those Guatemala missions, medical missions they do. It's going to go to refurb the classroom or to pay a rent check or to pay the light bill. You can think of it that way if you'd like, but that's not the way God would like you to think about it. 
He wants you to bring as an extension of your worship gifts, right? Gold, incense, and myrrh, right? That's not the particular things that we take as offerings these days. But the idea is I bring the wealth that God gives me as an extension and an expression of my worship. I say there's one thing that non-Christians hate. They hate offerings, right? They hate it. You know one thing that real worshiping Christians love? They love offerings. They love it. Matter of fact, the Bible says we become cheerful in our offerings. You know why? Because of the sequence that the song speaks about. The song says, and it's great lyric, let loving hearts enthrone him. Right? Loving hearts that enthrone Christ, love then saying, how can I give gifts in honor of the Lord to those that propagate the message of the gospel of Christ? Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians when he was bragging on those that were giving as he talked about the Corinthians who were probably the wealthiest Christians in the early missionary work of the Apostle Paul. And he says, you know, I know others out there and they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That's what they did. That was their part. Let's talk about your part in a minute, but they overflowed with a wealth of generosity on their part. And they gave according to their means. The rich guys gave a lot, the poor people gave some, but they were giving. Now I love this. They gave themselves first to the Lord. They enthroned Christ first and then by, I love this, the will, the want, the direction of God, what God wanted, then they gave, they gave their wealth to us. So Paul takes an offering, and he's going to utilize that offering for the health and, and, and the extension of the church, and he does that in particular to all that was going wrong in the church of Jerusalem, and he takes this, this gift from Asia Minor back to Jerusalem, but all of this, he says, is something that was done with a sequence. It was done first by themselves giving themselves fully to the Lord. And when we give ourselves to enthroning Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that we know he came to save us from our sins, and then we respond by worshiping him, right? It's always going to involve tangible giving. Always, always. So unashamedly and unabashedly, right? I'm gonna call the ushers for, we're gonna pass a bag. Now, you didn't maybe come prepared with your checkbook or your money in hand, that's fine. But as we do every Sunday here at church, we pass the bag knowing that me and my family and you probably give in some other way, through the app, through the website, whatever, electronically, Right? That's fine, but we pass the bag as an act of liturgy. In other words, we remind ourselves when that bag goes down the aisle that we do give. We give cheerfully as an extension of our worship. What child is this? It, it reminds us who he is, and then it says we, should, we ought to respond. And it's going to eventually get down to tangible acts of giving. And we make no apology for that. And those gifts, practically, if you want to think practically, Mr. Practical, right, they're used for practical means of extending the message of the gospel. But you ought to, first and foremost, Set your heart on saying, this is a gift because I love and worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. Here's a gift that I give in honor of Christ. Boom. Mm-hmm. 
sung about who he is, we've sung about what he's done, we've sung about how we ought to respond, and uh, I think it'd be good for us to talk about and sing about what Jesus should do in affecting our lives, what difference it should make, not just in how we respond and action, right? but, but how we feel, right? how it should change our, our internal state. And, and there's a great song to help us do that, but sadly... <laughs> It's the song that is probably the most misunderstood. It's really the reason we should have services like this, where we look at songs and make sure we understand exactly what we're saying. Because when we sing this song, I venture to guess that many of you don't know what we're saying with the lyrics of this song, because it's an old song, right? God rest ye merry gentlemen. Surely you all know that song, but I think there's a big question mark that probably rises over your head if you happen to lean in and pay attention to the lyrics. You go down to, uh, say, the spectrum and ask people walking around, hey, what do these words mean? God rest ye merry gentlemen. It will be something very different than if you go back to the origins of this song, which is disputed, but it is hundreds and hundreds of years old. And in the English language, as it was sung, I can guarantee you, if you go back into some village, some marketplace centuries ago, they're going to take the words, God rest ye merry gentlemen, and understand it very differently. Now, back to my childhood, I would sing this song in church, and I would think of these guys, merry gentlemen. And, uh, and I guess what I was singing here is that God needs to please give them some rest, because 
they've been out partying all night or something. They, they need some rest. So God, rest ye merry gentlemen. I, I didn't know what it meant, but I can tell you now, I clearly know and have learned that is not at all what it means. Right? It does not mean that God needs to give rest to these well-dressed men at a party. God, rest ye merry gentlemen. That's not what it means, right? It has nothing to do, actually, with, with merry people, merry gentlemen, with happy people. That's not what it means at all. As a matter of fact, God, rest ye merry gentlemen is really about gentlemen like this who are hurting. It's about men like this that are in pain. It's about young ladies like this who are frustrated and depressed. It's about women like this who are mourning and suffering. That's what this song is all about. And the thing that should at least get you to recognize, well, maybe I've been thinking wrongly about this song, is the little comma here between the word Mary and gentleman. The comma there helps us recognize that, of course, this is certainly addressed to gentlemen. To, 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 that's a polite way to speak of the people, the masses. Right? Of course, we, we want to address them, but what we're saying is, God, rest ye Mary. Right? God, rest ye Mary. Now, if you went back in time and you said 400 years ago, what does that mean, God, rest ye Mary? Well, that certainly is a phrase they would have understood very differently. God, rest ye Mary, and I'm addressing the masses, the gentlemen, the people of the marketplace. God, rest ye Mary. Well, what does that mean? If I were to update that, see, this is a, an optative, we call it. This is a wish. This is a prayer right? God, rest ye merry. We want you to be sustained. We want you to be strong. We want you to be heartened. We want you to be happy. We want you to be merry. God, make you joyful. May God, right? This is a hope, a wish, a prayer. May God make you joyful, right? Uh, gentlemen, people, hey, everybody, we want God to make you joyful. And you can see now why in a song that says you ought to be joyful, it really is directed toward people who are not, people that are hurting, people that are struggling, and this side of Genesis 3, it's not hard for us to imagine that many of you walk into a festively decorated room like this and you're hurting, you're struggling. Life is not the way you want it to be. It's hard. There's all kinds of problems. There's loss, there's deprivation, there's conflict. And we have that. And yet this song is saying, hey, uh, God rest you merry, gentlemen. God, God make you joyful. May God make you happy, people. That's what this song is about, and it starts to provide the answer in the very next line. Why? Remember, Christ was born, right? The whole purpose of Christ was to thwart the work of the enemy, right? To save us from Satan's power, right? Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. He comes to mess everything up. We live in the consequences of the tempter's work. We experience pain and loss and relational conflict and death. We experience all of that. But Christ came to save us from that, right? Remember, Christ was born to save us from Satan's power. And that'll communicate, I hope, in the, in the 14th century or the 21st century. Why? Because it gets around to the reason, tidings or a message or news of two things, comfort and joy. The message of the gospel ultimately is one of comfort and joy. It's all one that looks forward. We talked a lot about that a couple weeks ago. We talked a lot about that last week. It is about hope, H-O-P-E. It's moving us toward something that is yet to be realized in the future. But it was accomplished in the past. The second advent is the fulfillment of it all. The first advent is the purchase of it all. And we say between now and the time we inherit this kingdom, it's going to be tumultuous. And the Bible says, and Jesus himself said it, right? In this world, you will have tribulation but take heart of overcome the world. There's something coming that is going to fix all this. 
And as I've said many times before, Rembrandt's famous painting, my favorite painting of Rembrandt, of Jesus on, in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, right? this depicts well the reminder that we have that we are going to have hard times, and yet Jesus is supposed to be in our ship, in our boat. And I love this, and I've said it many times, but Rembrandt paints himself into this painting. We know because there's 14 guys on this boat and not, and not 13. Right? So Jesus and the 12 plus Rembrandt, the only one looking at the view, the viewer, and he's got his hand on his head going, this is, this is horrible. How's this going to end? Everyone's in a panic except, of course, Jesus. And if you know the story, Jesus was actually asleep before they woke him up and said, hey, don't you care about us? Right? We're perishing in this storm. Now, the whole point is that the coming of Christ was supposed to do something in our lives that was supposed to steady us, as I taught last week, as an anchor for our soul when things are hard, because the purchase of what happened at the first advent is going to lead to the fulfillment with absolute confidence in what is coming. I want to introduce to you a passage of scripture you may have read past many times if you've read the Bible. It's the closing two verses of 2 Thessalonians, where I think it's said in summary as well as any passage could ever say it. Look at these two verses. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, just like the God rest ye Mary is a prayer, right? Here, Paul gives this prayer to these Thessalonians going through a lot of struggle. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ, I love this, himself, right? May he himself take interest in you and may he do what I'm about to say here. And then he says, comma, and God our Father. Love that too. He's not just God, distant, transcendent, right? Omnipotent. He's God our Father. He cares. He cares about the struggles that we're in, the pain of the, of the junk that Satan has continued to throw our way in this world. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our Father. Now what about our Father, comma, love this, who loved us. The whole reason he sent Christ, right, was because he loved us. First verse you ever learned, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And because of his great love for us, right, what did he do? He gave us eternal comfort. It's a great word, eternal comfort. Right? Tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort, the New Testament word that translates that almost consistently, is the word parakaleo, comfort, parakaleo, that God has pulled alongside of us something that is going to prop us up, to steady us, to hearten us, to give us joy when things are hard. He's given us eternal comfort. This is something that's going to last forever. It's going to be realized forever. It's going to settle in at one point and we will forever experience it. And you ought to know this is a promise that is protected by the power of God. There's nothing that can reverse this for those in Christ. And he says to these Christians, now may God, right, who loved us, who has granted to us this eternal comfort, and I love this, and good hope, right? Hope is not cross your fingers. I, I'm wishing it happens, but it's a confidence of what's coming, and it's an assured confidence, a good hope. I love this now. Through grace, you didn't earn it, you weren't better than the next guy. That's why you got it and the other people didn't, right? Through his grace and his kindness, through just the fact that he's a merciful God looking at sinners like us and calling us to repentance. Read it so far. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. What's the prayer? Here it is. Comfort your hearts. Another, another repetition of the word prayer, May he just give you that, com may he strengthen you in the midst of this storm. If you're sad, you're struggling, you're pained, you're, you're grieving, you're deprived, things aren't the way you want them, welcome to planet Earth, right? And Christians are not immune. You are here along with the rest of us struggling through this fallen world. But if you're a Christian, you're trusting in Christ and he's given you, I love this, eternal comfort and good hope. 
May he even right now himself and the Father who loved us, right? May he strengthen and encourage and steady your heart no matter how hard the storm is. That's what this song is about. Hey, may he make you joyful. God rest ye merry, people, gentlemen. Let's sing that knowing exactly what we're singing in this great carol.
only reason we know about the birth of Christ is because God had commissioned people to write it down and to share that message in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That's how this all came and found its way to us, and that is how Christianity is supposed to work. We've been singing about who Christ is, we've been singing about what he's done and how we are to respond and how he's even supposed to affect us internally, but I think we should end by at least thinking about how God wants to use you in this long chain of people who are bringing this message to more and more, and we ought to think about that with a song that probably is not the one you would choose if you were to be asked, well, you choose a song about taking this message and moving it on. I mean, you might sing, go tell it on the mountain and talk about that or something, but the reality is that we need to sing a song that maybe the words don't remind you of your opportunity to share the message, but the story behind it certainly will. And that's the most famous Christmas carol of all, I assume, in the modern era, and that is Silent Night, which takes us all the way back to Austria and this little town of Oberndorf in a church, poetically enough, named St. Nicholas Church. Now, that's another sermon, but St. Nicholas was a real pastor in the fourth century who stood up for uh, good doctrine and the clarity about who Christ was, and this little church was named after him and ended up being, of course, the figure that the modern fabled, you know, uh, Santa Claus was uh, named after, St. Nicholas. So here is this little church in um, Salzburg, uh, northwestern Austria, and uh, there is a young pastor named Joseph uh, Moore who was in charge. This is uh, the early 1800s, early 19th century, and uh, he's a 25-year-old in charge of this church, and just like us, he has Christmas Eve services, and so he is early in the morning going to go to the church, just as I did, first car in the parking lot this morning, early in the morning, trying to make sure everything is ready, just like a lot of us on staff, making sure all is what it ought to be. And he goes into his little church, St. Nicholas Church, to make sure they're all ready to celebrate Christmas Eve. And as he does on that snowy December day, uh, he goes in and checks to make sure everything's the way it ought to be, that the heat is right, that the place is set up right. And he goes over to the organ to make sure the organ is working, and on Christmas Christmas Eve, it is not. And he is, like many of us pastors are when we think the service is going to go south, he's panicked. Uh, He's thinking, this isn't going to work. If we don't have an organ, what are we going to do? And everything they had prepared, at least for the music segment of this service, was dependent on that organ. And so they couldn't really do what they had planned to do, at least melodically, and they're singing unless we have that organ working. And There was some special music plan that couldn't work. So he doesn't know what to do, but he goes back into his study. He goes into his desk, and he starts to say, what can we do? Maybe we can sing something a cappella. Well, he happened to be a poet, and his expressions to God, he would write poetry. He would write songs uh, that maybe one day would become songs. They were poems. And he went into his desk drawer and digs down in this stack, and he pulls out one that was written about the birth of Christ. And he says, this would be a good poem if only it had music set to it. We could sing it. So it's hours before the service is supposed to start, but that poem became something he thought so perfectly depicted what he wanted to focus on in that Christmas Eve service that he said, if I could just find someone to whip some music up underneath this, maybe we could sing this in this service. So he knows one man in his congregation that could do just that, Franz Gruber. And he goes through the snow, puts his coat on, and goes to his house. He knows he's an accomplished guitarist, and he comes to him and slaps down this poem on the table, and he says, hey, is there any way we could write some music real quick for the service that's coming? And Franz Gruber does it. He puts a 
a catchy little melody to this little poem, and he turns it into a song that they decide to be able to sing in the church to a guitar in St. Nicholas Church on Christmas Eve, and they go back, rush back uh, to St. Nicholas Church on Christmas Eve, and they pull this out with much trepidation, and they start to sing it. So simple, so touching, so poetic, everyone loved it. Everyone sang it, everyone wanted to sing it, everyone continued to love it in that church. And as I've been told, the organ repairman showed up, it was on the music stand, he thought this was good, it needed to be published throughout Austria, and it started to make the rounds. And with the growth of technology, it was put into every format that it could be put into, and every time someone heard it, they loved it, they wanted the music for it, it got put into every hymnal across Europe, it became the most popular Christmas carol, it was sung, obviously, and still is, all over the place, on every stage, in every TV show, on every, in every church in almost every Christmas Eve service, and it all comes back to one guy who went into his drawer and said, what's the best thing I got that can make this happen? It's not great. It's not as good as what we could have done. It's not as good as what someone else can do, but maybe God could use my words here. Think about that kid that came to Jesus with two fish and a few loaves and said, I don't know, it's not much, and there's a lot of people to feed here, but what can you do with this, Jesus? And because of these two men, that song became the most sung Christmas carol of all because they were willing to be useful to God by bringing what they had, even though they didn't think it was all that. And God turned it into something great. And I love the bronze statue in Salzburg that depicts these two men creating this song as the most famous Christmas carol of all. And if you look closer, look it up on Wikipedia or whatever, you got to enjoy uh, Pastor Moore's face as there's that sense of panic on his face. That's how I read it at least. Maybe as a pastor, I, I, I commiserate with that. And yet he's got his finger up. He's got an idea. And standing over his shoulder is his friend, Franz Gruber, who writes the music to something we continue to sing every year. And I just want you to remember the humble beginnings of this thrown together before a service, that something you say, something you do, somehow you communicate the message of Christ, God can use it greatly. Just keep talking, keep sharing the message of the coming of Christ and all that it was intended to do. And God will use you also. Let's stand as we close the time singing.